2: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Ezra Klein and back with us, Sarah Cliff. Oh
1: shit! I'm here. Hello!
2: Whoa, where have you been?
1: I have been on parental leave. I had a baby in June, and he is great, and his name is Max, and he is about four months old now. When's he gonna be on the weeds? Whenever um, Jose invites him on, Jose is the elder <laughs> Weedsling, sure, sure. Um I believe would have to lead that episode. Yeah, we'll
2: have to start. Um, he needs to learn to talk. A, maybe, a, yeah, talking is important. So. An important part. So we thought we would come back to this with um, actually talking about leave policy um, and, and child and family policy. It's something I've been interested in for the past three and a half years, <laughs> give or take, <laughs> give or take. And now, now I have a, a second host to uh, talk about this with me and. Uh, but what, what do you think?
1: Yeah, so um as someone who was recently on leave and someone interested in policy, it was I, I spent a little while this week kind of diving into the research around parental leave and childcare and I think you know it's interesting to think of it kind of this way. We have a lot of children who are basically 0 to 3. If you know, I think we generally agree it is a good idea to keep having children to keep society in existence. So you have these kids who are really small who do not fit into kind of like our normal public education system. They're too young for that public benefit. And there is this policy decision that every government has to make about how do we provide care to those children? How do we – or do we help parents provide care to this group of children, this kind of under-three set? And, you know, as I think about it now, I think it's almost like a spectrum where, you know, starting with one, you could do nothing, which is the American option. You can just (laughs) have people have children and have it be incredibly expensive. Um, You know, I'm lucky to work at a company that provides paid parental leave, but that is not mandated in the U.S. The kind of most you get in the United States is a guarantee that you can keep your job 12 weeks after you have your baby if you come back, but you are not um, paid. You are not required to be paid during that time. So, you know, on one side of the spectrum, you know, it's just Do nothing. It's up to the parents. That's a pretty rare policy decision for governments to make. I'd say the next step is providing parental leave, you know, requiring either the government or the companies to pay people while they are off raising their children. This is what most countries do. There's huge variation. Um, I was looking at some of the research on European countries. In the Czech Republic, women are provided with 28 weeks of maternity leave with 70% of their salary, followed up with four years of parental leave, which seems like an incredibly long time. Paid? No, they're job – so job protected. So job protected. You get, yeah, so, that, so those are two of the things going on. How so you do can, you
3: even enforce that?
1: I don't know. Right? I mean, Like if somebody's
3: gone for four years, like the company's changed a lot.
1: Yeah, the company might not go exist. going go out of business. Right. right. <laughs> it could um, be gone. Yeah. So, you know, that's one thing you can do. You can provide parental leave. You can provide subsidized childcare. You can, you know, say you can go back to work and we are going to make it easy, free, subsidized to some level. We are going to make it affordable for you to have someone else watch your kid. Or you could give people the money and kind of let them decide. Do they want to – pay for child care? Do they want to stay home themselves? There's a surprising number of European countries. I was reading a Rand review on this topic. They'll put in show notes. Um, Finland, Norway, Belgium, Austria, and Greece um, at the end of parental leave give parents an option to receive a child care allowance or to use that allowance to purchase some kind of child care outside the home. So kind of saying, you know, okay, it's up to you how you want to provide care. And I think it's a really interesting decision that says a lot about a country's value. It has a huge effect on the people providing the care. I think one of the things I didn't understand until I went on parental leave, I think parental leave is a fantastic benefit, and, like, I definitely needed to be off for a few months after having my baby. It is also incredibly hard, which is going to sound so dumb and basic to anyone else who's been on maternity leave. It's a lot of work to be with a baby 10 hours a day. Well, I, and I, I would say one other thing beyond it being work— it's a pretty lonely experience. It is hard to find those people who had the baby at the exact same time as you. It is hard to go see them when you're sleep-deprived and dealing with a very tyrannical, unpredictable boss. It can be, you know, I found until I kind of settled into a good routine, I found the experience of being on maternity leave a pretty lonely one because it is such a disruption of what I was used to, and it was so different from what everyone I knew was doing. So I think there's this component of, you know, there's a lot of things that go on in figuring out how do you want to structure leave and childcare that are part about, well, what's best for the kids, but it's also there's this parent on the other end who is providing the care. And, and you know, you also have what's best for them as another factor that's going on.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good starting point, right? Because if you think in the sort of broad left of center universe in the United States, right, I think probably pretty much everybody could agree that like some Mandatory parental leave would be a good idea like rather than zero like the physical recovery from childbirth is difficult extremely young children uh, and brand new parents like sort of need some time and like right now we've got nothing right. The question of like beyond something, like what should we do? I do think it gets more controversial, right? Like when I was a non-parent, just a kind of like 20-something admirer of Northern European welfare states, I would look at these charts where like Sweden was at like a year and I'd be like, that's great. Like clearly, ideally, that's what we should do. If we have to settle for like three months, like fine. But like that's like best in class. Having had a baby and have several friends have babies, I'm I'm now a little skeptical of that. And like I've actually heard from a a close friend of mine who's not from the Nordic countries but who was working in in Finland and was like put on Finnish family leave. And she said she found it quite oppressive because there's like a social expectation that you will use the leave that you are given, right? So even though like technically nobody can like stop you— from going back to work on your ninth month, like, there's, like, a very heavy expectation that, like, you will use this benefit. Well, and
1: if you're being paid, like, a strong economic incentive to, like, you know— Economize, right? right, economize versus, like, go back to your job and, like, even pay for cheap, finished childcare. Right,
2: right, 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 right. But then, you know, it it sort of flips again when you think that, like, well, okay, so then, you know, should there be free, like, childcare for everybody, And then I try to be broad-minded and reflective again. Like a lot of the people who I know are sort of like relatively high-achieving professionals who went to fancy colleges and are on at least like somewhat exciting career paths and would really enjoy a government benefit that defrayed the cost of childcare. But also like lots of people, probably most people, are in like not as – prestigious or well-paid or necessarily pleasant lines of work and they really might enjoy like more time to spend with their children, right? And it it actually becomes – like America does so little that it seems like it would be like trivially easy to do better. But I like really don't know like what would be best. I think
3: there's a question that I rarely hear answered in these conversations, too, about what is the policy trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. Are these pronatalist policies? Do we want it to be the case that the American birth rate goes up, right? We're at about 1.8 now. Replacement rate is 2.1. Is the thing that people want to see happen that it is easier for for more people to have children? Right now, about according to to data I saw at Pew, about 40 percent of women say they end up having fewer than the number of children they ideally wanted to have. So maybe that's a thing we want to fix. Or is it that we just want, if somebody does have a children, for some minimum level of compassion or or, or time with the baby, Societally, Do we have a preference between babies being at home with their mothers and childcare? Should we have one? Well, one of the things that I think makes this conversation a little bit tricky is that uh, I do think it operates mostly – in the American context, it's a very easy conversation because we're doing so little that doing almost anything <laughs> makes more sense. But in terms of actually constructing uh, a policy – you have to begin with some idea of what your policy is trying to achieve. And that's something I very rarely hear spoken about. I think there's properly a reticence for the government to have very strong opinions about how people raise their children or whether or not people have more children. But when you're talking about this kind of policy change, on some level, that's embedded in the program no matter what. So it's at least worth discussing.
1: Yeah, no, I think it is a place where it's not clear. And one of the things where it's like, I don't even know if we have great – research to make a lot of those decisions. Because another, like, some of these policy goals could be, you know, the well-being of the people having children is one policy goal you might want to keep in mind. And that actually leads to, like, some kind of funny, surprising conclusions if, you know, you're thinking about the earnings potential of a woman, you know, having this, like, really long maternity leave actually could kind of cut against her long-term earning potentials because it's pulling her out of the workforce for a longer period of time. But on the other hand, you know, if there is a preference – to be home longer, like that is something that might matter as well. And also the well-being of children is another goal you're probably thinking about as well. Is it better for a child to be home with a parent in a childcare center and a nanny? There is a decent amount of research around this that unfortunately doesn't come to super strong conclusions. I think you can find a lot of the research to support whatever conclusion you're kind of looking for. You know, one of the larger meta studies on this I was reading through yesterday, which we'll put in the show notes, suggested that for ages two and three, there isn't really much of a difference between being in a Childcare facility between being with a stay-at-home parent. But in the first year of life, you do see some outcomes that are better for um kids whose whose parents are home, which is like not the most exciting conclusion to read, like when you are someone who is about to send your kid to daycare next week when they're four months old. But I think you're right, Ezra. There's a lot of different things that we don't even agree on the parameters of like what we are trying to achieve. I think like there's this nebulous, like, well, we're trying to make life. Better for women and we're trying to make things like easier to have kids. But it doesn't seem like there's a clear sense of like – like when I think about health policy, like the goal of the Affordable Care Act was to get more people health insurance. Like this does not like have a quite as clear line between the policies and like what they're trying to do. Well, and
2: another complicating factor, right, is that there are other aspects of social policy that this winds up touching on, right? So, Sarah, you and I, were, we were talking about, this controversy in Germany, about yes. they they instituted a program. It was like a subsidized daycare program, but it also had a kind of take the check home with you option uh, where the amount of money involved was not that high. But basically...
1: That was 150 euros right. a month.
2: If you wanted to be a stay-at-home parent... In 95% of cases, it was a mom, but, you know, it was a gender-neutral policy. Instead of getting a state daycare subsidy, you could get 150 euro subsidization to stay at home. Now, in the abstract, that seems like a pretty reasonable idea to me. I mean, particularly considering that the cost of the daycare subsidy is much higher than 150 euros. So, you know, you're giving people some optionality. You're also saving some money. The German employers' organization didn't like that because – it depresses workforce participation. But the sort of social conservative party, uh, particularly its Bavarian members, but some of its non-Bavarian members, they they were enthusiastic about this. They wanted to support traditionalist families uh, insofar as they wanted to. And what's kind of put a, a hook into it is that there are now also a lot of immigrants to Germany, right? So there's a business interest in like, no, women should be in the workplace. And there's a kind of feminist interest in like, no, we should be providing work support. But there's also a kind of assimilationist sense that it's a problem to have this stay-at-home moms program when it's disproportionately used by immigrants. And we need these kids to be in the German nursery schools, learning the German language and getting assimilation. I think a similar Parallel issue to that in the United States is sort of the politics of race and welfare, right? That if you say we're going to have a subsidy program for stay at home moms, and I use those words, and the mental image that pops up in people's heads is of a married person whose husband works full time, I think a lot of people will say, okay, that makes sense, right? We should have some childcare support for working moms, but also if people want to be stay at home parents, we should do that. But if what actually winds up happening is that a lot of single mothers with low levels of education and poor career prospects wind up disproportionately being the people who want it, then you have, quote unquote, welfare, where we are paying people not to work. And we have this kind of fractured social consensus in America where it's fine for parents to not work if their spouse is working, but it's like not considered fine to be a single unemployed mother, particularly if you're black, right? And it's like, it's very tricky because you like, in both of these cases, right? Like Germany is not going to write a law that says like, we will subsidize stay-at-home parents, but not if you're an immigrant, you know, like that kind of thing. It would be perverse to have a subsidy program for married stay-at-home parents who actually need less help. Than single ones. But so then we wind up crafting policy to like avoid the most politically toxic outcomes rather than to provide like the services that we actually want typical families to have.
3: But but it's such a remarkably perverse cultural equilibrium, right? And and I'm so glad you brought it up because the idea that we prize stay-at-home parenting as long as it's something that you have an economic choice to do. right. We prize stay-at-home parenting when it is a choice made from a space of – I don't want to call it privilege because a lot of people who are stay-at-home parents and have one parent working are struggling economically. But it's coming from a place of choice and the structure could be built either way versus when – there aren't a lot of choices, right, when when it's something you more need to do, when otherwise – and by the way, a lot of times in the cases where people are single parents, there's a lot less just social support around their children anyway. So it actually is more important for there to be a family member there with them. It just goes back a little bit, I think, to how unbelievably unclear we are on what we actually want to achieve here, Just like how bad the discourse around family is. Which is why it then gets hijacked into whatever debate we better understand that is nearest to it right? Like we have a very well-constructed debate around whether or not people should work in this country. And so if it just becomes actually about like whether or not people should be working at all, whether or not a family should have a worker in it, then it gets like magnetically pulled there or there's a debate that has been very poisonous about race in this country. And I do think some of this comes from just not knowing how to have a discussion about child policy in this country. You know, one of the things I was thinking about reading some of the literature here is that a – goal that would make, I think, a lot of sense is, one, to make sure that families have the ability to have the number of children they would like to have, but two, that they are more able to do it when they want to. There's a real, real trend in, in America right now towards later childbirth, which is a big reason people often end up not having as many children as they would like to have because they get past the point where they can or they get past the point where you know whatever happens, right? Right. But a lot of people, it's not a choice not to have them earlier. It's that their jobs are on a career ladder. They don't have enough money. They There's this report that came out a couple of years ago about the difference between capstone marriage and child rearing and cornerstone marriage and child rearing. That it used to be that you got married and you had children and it was a cornerstone of building an adult life. It was something you built on top of. You did it when you were younger. Uh, increasingly, it's a capstone. It's something you do when a lot of other things are figured out, um, not just your partnership but also like your work life and your educational situation, I have a lot of friends who have been in lengthy grad programs. And, you know, those grad programs will often take you into until you're 30 or about 30. But people don't want to have kids before they're out of the grad program because they don't feel like adults yet. And they're unstable. They're not sure where they're going to live, you know, economically. They're not making that much money. And that's a tough thing. Um, And again, it's something that I don't think we have any real framework, either culturally or politically, for discussing in a clear way.
1: But I guess if that's where things are headed, then you have to, like, think about a policy that fits into that world. You know, I, I think one of the reasons this comes into such collision also has to, you know, it has to do with people waiting longer to have children and also, obviously, you know, women being in greater numbers in the workforce where you wouldn't have even had this debate, you know, 50 years ago. There wasn't a need for child care because there was someone who was home to provide child care. Um, I really liked um, Heather Bush. She has a term for that. She kind of calls it, like, the silent partner and the you know american workforce was built around this idea of silent partners who kind of kept the train running at home and you know it might also be one of those cases where there are different policy solutions for different types of childbearing situations like you might have a different policy solution for someone who is at that capstone level who is like making a decision to have children who is having fewer children than they want that might have a different policy solution than you know someone who is single raising a child on their own is struggling more financially. That even though, like, I think these get grouped together as, like, people having babies, they might actually require quite different policy responses. And, I mean, I think one of the most interesting divides in this debate for me to think about, you know, after going on leave is, like, this decision of, like, should we give people a lot of leave or should we subsidize their childcare? Like, what is the better— policy decision. You know, it, there's some considerations about how much it costs the government. I think I was someone, like, before I went on leave, like Matt, who read about Nordic leave policy and thought, like, that's so great. You get so much time. And then, you know, I was also someone who was very ready when Vox's 14 weeks of paid leave were over. I was grateful I would had, had those, and I was very ready to come back to work, that I felt like I was being served better, by paying for childcare and working, and that my baby is going to be happier because I'm happier in that situation. But I think it's an interesting question of like, how do we want to, you know, we have this money that a government can spend. Do they want to spend it towards paying parents to take a leave from their job or do they want to pay it towards subsidizing childcare? Yeah, but I mean, I guess as I,
2: you know, try to think about answers, right? Like, to me, the biggest thing is that, like, I think we should be dedicating like a lot more resources to this problem. I I often see articles about like really mild policy interventions. You know, like there was a Japanese program that was going to cut people a check for about $1,500. And there was like this whole article on like, will this move the needle on Japan's fertility rate? And it was like very skeptical. And like, you know, like, yeah, like probably it won't because it's like it's tiny, right? Like – that's an amount of money that will cover some of the cost of buying some socks for a child over the course of a lifetime. It won't fully cover the cost of a lifetime's worth of socks for a child. But, you know, it will help, right? And it doesn't begin to touch, like, the opportunity costs of the time, you, you know, things like that, right? And then if you look at, like, okay, well, what should we do about 12-year-olds, like, there's a school for them, right? And uh, we have lots to disagree with about the like, how the school should work, how schools should be organized. But there's like no policy dispute between children of five years old and children of 18 years old that like big resources, large physical structures, the single most common profession in America is like working in these big school buildings. Like it's a really big deal. But it's bizarre to just like start that at, Five right? Like more and more places have pre-K for four-year-olds. Some places have pre-K for some three-year-olds. But like clearly every place should have pre-K for three-year-olds and for four-year-olds. Maybe it should be optional, you know, if you have something else you want to do. But like the facilities should exist and like the government should build them. Now, if someone said like we're going to have a sliding scale tax credit so everyone can afford sixth grade, we'd be like, no, like that's crazy, right? Like it's a a huge disincentive for middle-class people to have children to structure like child-related subsidies as a narrow anti-poverty program rather than just like universal provision for everyone. And once you're like there, once you just own up to the fact that like if women are not going to be silent partners, like we need to like gut up and like (laughs) spend a lot of money on kids who are under five years old, then I think some of these – trade-offs become a little less harsh, right? It's like the reason it becomes so tough to decide like exactly what we want to do with an eight-month-old baby is that we're insisting on being stingy about it. But like there totally could be child care centers and also an option to stay home, But so one thing I think is really interesting about this
3: and it goes to to what Sarah was saying at the beginning of the episode that America is very much an outlier in its policy here and in part because it's very much an outlier in its politics here. So two pieces of this that I want to touch on. One of the things that has been interesting in the Democratic Party for the last decade or so has been the continuous near emergence of modern – one might call modern family policy, although modern family now being – maybe did the show end? Anyway, (laughs) Um, family policy keeps almost becoming the next big thing and then not. So so people may not remember this, but in 2008 – uh, before Barack Obama ran for president, oh, his, I remember <laughs> his Senate policy director was a woman named Karen Cornblue, who is known for doing this kind of work. She was known for having done really, really interesting articles and proposals and programs at New America and other places, trying to think through how do you rebuild family-friendly policy given what families actually looked like now. And so she was a very big hire for Obama when he was in the Senate. Like it was a big deal that he got her. And she was on the, the campaign as well, but that never became a major part of the campaign she you know wasn't in the white house after after he won office
2: literally so he won and and she got a job as the ambassador to the oecd which is like a really fun kind of patronage job but not a like at the center of the policy well
3: well, whatever the the details there whatever it is it just did not become a big part of obama administration policy they did over time propose some universal pre-K stuff but it just it was never it was never like what Obama administration or Obama campaign policy was about and then I remember talking in 2015 to people around Hillary Clinton and being like what is the Hillary Clinton campaign going to be about and they were telling me it's like look like you're going to have for the first time a woman a mother the nominee for a major party for president and like she is going to make family friendly policy like the core of everything and you know I was saying oh we're talking about leave or we talking about you don't understand like it's so much bigger than that. Like because it's always men doing this, they don't realize what a big deal this is. But then you know, I think if you like rewind the tape on Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, while there are a lot of policies that she proposed around this, it was not her message. Like people do not think of Hillary Clinton 2016 and think of like – Like a a fair deal for families or whatever it might have been. On the other side of this, Donald Trump um, seemed like the emergence of something we see in Europe all the time, which is a kind of right-wing party that is ethno-nationalist that believes that like the real people who belong to the country should have a lot more kids because they don't want the country to be overrun with immigrants or – Children of other hues, I guess, is a way to put it. You know, so it's pro social safety net, but like very like anti immigration, etc. This is what Patrick Buchanan was on some level. Like you can read Pat Buchanan books, like Death of the West, and it's hugely about declining birth rates and like the need for the West and particularly for white people in the West to begin having more kids. Donald Trump maybe gestures in some of these directions, does not become this. Uh, let's his economic policy be written. Directly by Wall Street, there was like the Ivanka Trump sort of feint towards maybe more family-friendly policy. It never goes anywhere. And so there's like an interesting thing here, which is why despite it seeming quite obvious, despite there seeming to be very, very large constituencies for it, despite there being a lot of thinkers in different ways on both sides, like there are a lot of very pro-natalist thinkers on the right. There are a lot of very pro-family thinkers on the left. Does this – do neither of the political coalitions ever seem to organize themselves such – to make this a big deal, even though they know it is, right? To your point about the the zero to five thing, like it wasn't such a big deal 50 years ago because for the most part, families had um, only one provider in the workforce and one was staying at home taking care of kids. That isn't how families are organized now. Why hasn't this happened? I think we better
2: take a break.
1: I have a theory. And then
0: Sarah
2: can explain why it hasn't happened.
0: Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAP. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash weeds. Okay, so I want to talk about this Chart I saw a few
1: months ago that I think like actually tackles this question. I'm of, so glad you're back. <laughs> <of> why this? <laughs> why this doesn't happen? This and is it,
2: the only podcast where we we will try to describe. I've verbally heard um, I've heard
1: charts are great for the podcasting <laughs> media where I can look at it and you can't. Um, but so it's from um, this study that got a lot of play. It was looking at the gender wage gap in Denmark, um, showing that the gender wage gap is essentially related to childbearing. But it, it's not about that. It's about attitudes towards women working when their children are very young. So he cites this data. um, This is an author from Princeton, Henrik Levin, um, and he cites this data from the International Social Survey Program where they ask people, do you think that women should work outside the home full-time, part-time, or not at all when a child is under school age? And um, in the U.S., about 18 percent say women should work full-time outside the home when their child is under school age, 40 percent say work part-time, and 45-ish percent say stay at home. There are still such strong attitudes around this in ways that really surprised me when I saw this chart that there is still widely an expectation that like, well, what happens when you have a baby is that like you slow down, you take some time off, you don't give that baby to someone else. Like it is your child and like you are going to – and you, I'd say, would be being the woman. I think another thing that's pretty interesting in this same survey is when you um, – Ask people about, you know, men having children. It's like, oh, well, the man has to go to work. He has to provide for the family. Like a man should absolutely not be home with his children. I was surprised seeing that and the survey data is a little bit old. It's from two thousand and two, so I don't know if there's a more up to- date version of this particular survey, but I was surprised to see that it was so strongly against women working full time. And it almost feels like a bit of a chicken and egg problem. Like maybe if we had better childcare and like there was a guarantee in the United States that there would be an affordable child care spot for you, that our views on women going back to work would change because we'd know there's like an affordable, safe place that American babies are being taken care of. But we don't have that right now. And I think that might be one of the things that, you know, holds this back as a key Policy issue is that in a way it like almost seems in this polling data like a little like, oh, well, we've settled that. Like women just need to stay home with their children when their babies are born and like that's the way the world works. Well, so
2: I agree that this is significant. But I think that like a real problem – here. Like, so I don't know. I, I don't want to do one of my rants about how Republicans are bad. They're just – they're bad. They're, they're, they're not going to try T-L-D-R. to do things <laughs> to Miss solve you, problems. So the question is is like will Democrats – and I do think like here's the problem, right? So you have Democrats and they're like, okay, we should have this policy. Then internal to the coalition, this is kind of handed off to women who are Democrats to write this policy. Then to be like senior enough to be doing this policy, you have to be an unusually successful professionally to like work on a presidential campaign or be a United States senator, right? Like you you are more successful than the average person. So you have – Women who are very career-oriented and very successful trying to craft policy, but then they're trying to craft policy for a country which does not actually have very many like full-time stay-at-home moms, but has some culturally conservative instincts about this. And then you just get these collisions, you know, where it's like they – like won't write a policy that delivers what people want from family policy, which is to make it easier for mothers to work part-time if that's what they would like to do, right? And so you'll get like – sometimes someone will propose a universal family allowance, right? And one great thing about a universal family allowance is that it could cut child poverty in half. And that will become the only thing that anybody says about the universal family allowance. Like nobody will say that one thing a universal family allowance might let you do is like a non-poor family with children would have some more money and they could use that money in various ways. It would defray the cost of child care. It would also defray the cost of not working full time. Like it's not that the policy is controversial, but like people will sit there and spin out like endless articles about like how do we get people who are somewhat more socially conservative than the Democratic Party base to vote for our amazing economic policy solutions. And there was like the time when Democrats were supposed to sell out on uh, marriage equality or abortion will like pop up every three years. Or now after Trump, there's like all these think pieces like, you know, immigration, like maybe we should say immigrants are bad or whatever else. But this to me, Is like really the obvious one, right? That like the government could do things that would help people who have somewhat traditionalist values live the lives that they want to have. And if you structure those things in a reasonable way, right? Like you could structure it the Czech way, which is like hardcore, like get back in the kitchen kind of stuff. And like that's crazy. Like like don't do – That, But so many like reasonable things that would help all families with children, one of the things that it would do is make it more economically feasible for people who have more traditionalist values and notably people who have less exciting jobs than the people who are making policy, right? That like if you are – a working class person and your job is like you work at CVS, then like maybe you would rather spend more time with uh, your children. But I, I want to pull
3: back one more time a little bit to this question of the political economy of it. Because it's true that the Republican Party uh, does not try to solve many problems. But there's some that it does try to solve like corporations are paying too much money in taxes. And dreamers are being able to stay here without fear of deportation. And um, there isn't a wall across the southern border, but maybe there could be. And the Democratic Party, conversely, does try to solve a lot of problems when, it, when it's in office and has a lot of different policy uh, uh, ideas going around. But neither – like consistently, despite the fact that a lot of these ideas are popular or seem popular, neither side focuses on them. and. One thing we've done in this discussion is have a lot of international comparison. And the thing that is true is that in other countries, political coalitions do focus on the ideas. That is why – America is such an outlier here, that the, the policy outlier is downstream from the political outlier. Like in other countries, there are political coalitions that have taken power, that have chosen at some time or another to use their political capital to make family-oriented policy the thing they were doing as opposed to other things they wanted to do, right? They didn't do healthcare that time. They didn't do whatever. And,
2: and like, they eventually yeah? stopped arguing about healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> maybe
3: that's what it is, right? There's And maybe the answer is as simple as there's a, an old political science paper that's influenced me a lot. It's about the 1994 Clinton healthcare bill, but it's called It's the Institution Stupid. And the idea is basically that the reason America doesn't have a national health care plan is it's just really hard to pass anything here. And so we just do less of everything. Like we're just like compared to European countries, we just have less social policy of every kind. And it's just, well, if everything's really hard to do, you just do less stuff. So maybe that's the answer. But I genuinely find this puzzling. Like it does not – When I look at the kinds of things people choose to focus on in politics versus family-oriented policy, which has just a massive constituency, is itself a very sympathetic constituency, is an actually quite politically powerful constituency and in different ways connects to everybody's ideological priors and their views about the future, I, I, I genuinely don't Get it. That's why I'm bringing up this puzzle of like a continuously almost bursting forward. I mean the Republican Party, the Christian right is very powerful and it's not like the Christian right does not get some of what it wants. Like look at Kavanaugh, right? Look at what happens in judicial nominations. But somehow like this never gets to the front. Well, but I
2: mean this is why this would be my my political pitch for Democrats trying to win socially conservative voters is that like you saw in Germany, right? Like a key lurking tension in the conservative coalition is that business interests when pressed to it. Like they don't like love the idea of making abortion illegal, but they don't care, right? But like the government using tax revenue to allow parents to spend more time with their children, like they hate that idea, <laughs> right? And, and it's a thing you could do, right? If you make a program that helps both working and part-time and stay-at-home mothers and then you notice that like these guys in the Christian coalition are like – not supporting families, it's, like, it's very potent because there is a real reason. And it's that, like, the right in America gets its votes off social, cultural issues. But, like, the policy is all made by the Chamber of Commerce.
1: So, I mean, one other thought I have on that, I think it often gets just, like, shoved to the side as a woman's issue. And, like, I think that is also something that holds it back. You know, it almost—and that, like, honestly, like— not to be too but, like, we just don't care a lot about women at that stage in their life. Like, this actually makes me think a lot about the great reporting that ProPublica has been doing on maternal mortality. You know, something else, you know, that sets us apart from other countries as well, the maternal mortality rate is falling in nearly—in, like, every other developed country. Ours isn't just falling slower. It is going up. Like, it is becoming more dangerous to have babies in the United States than it was 10 years ago. Like, that's an insane fact. And you don't see like – like you're starting to see a little bit of policymaking around that now that um, ProPublica has been doing this great reporting around it. But, you know, I think this kind of is part and parcel of how we think about – There was a great quote in one of the ProPublica articles around this that, you know, definitely rang true to my experience having a kid is that like women are often treated as kind of like the candy wrapper around this like exciting new candy, the baby. And like once you have the baby, you're kind of just like – tossed to the side. And I think a lot of that feels really true in how postnatal care is delivered. A lot of that feels really true in like how we set up like our leave and childcare policies, where, you know, at the end of the day, like it's going to get figured out. And it'll usually be women who will do the figuring out of like how this infant is going to get cared for in the zero to three years. So I don't know, in a lot of ways it feels in keeping with how, you know, our policymakers treat women at this particular stage in their life that, you know, we're we're not really focusing on, like, the health of, you know, this particular group of people in a lot of ways. And we've kind of, like, accepted that. And it's really shameful that we've accepted the fact, like, more women are dying in childbirth. And, like, that's just a fact of life in the United States now.
3: I think all that's true. And I think that, this is something that uh, back when I was talking to Clinton's people, like, look, all this has always been pushed aside as a woman's issue. So now that a woman is running for president, it won't be. And then it sort of was, and maybe that's because Donald Trump distracted them or whatever. But I, I just think this is important. I think that for the Democratic Party, the amount of energy that goes into defending Social Security from both real and perceived attack, compared to the amount of energy that goes into this set of issues, is is out of proportion. The Republican Party has uh, a lot of the amount of energy goes into corporate tax cuts as opposed to this issue. Is out of proportion. And I don't know, you know, a lot of the countries we've talked about here are – they're not less patriarchal than America has been. They're not less misogynistic. I mean, some of them are, right? Some of them uh, have more of a a culture of equality, but others don't. So I just – I think this is a, a situation where you can imagine a pretty different constellation of political power and emphasis and prioritization, and it could break through and I, I, one of the points I keep making is that it feels like in recent years it has been trying to break through and it just hasn't quite yet. Like Donald Trump was sort of like a candidate who would have been very different on this but then he wasn't because he's Donald Trump. Like he, Donald Trump has this very fascinating quality of having looked like an ideologically coherent candidate from another country but just like only – sort of looking like that, like his impulses are in in that, he'd be like a good voter for that party in another country, like not actually the leader of the party. Uh, And here, I think this is something that Democrats have been talking about for a long time. And, you know, a real question is whether or not they do it. I do sometimes think about this world in which we just like Politics had not gone where it did in 2016. It just went in a more normal direction. And some of these ideological fights that were beginning to get figured out on both ends just kept getting figured out as opposed to being – like everybody gets thrown into this emergency where a lot of policymaking just becomes talk about Donald Trump. Like this is the kind of stuff that – parties when they're out of power are supposed to be doing and figuring out in the background but I don't really think the Democratic Party is because so much of its energy is thinking about Donald Trump and the threat he he causes to democracy and you know what are they going to do about him but to everything you're saying like this should be different and it could be different um and you know hopefully it will be.
2: We're actually supposed to do like a whole episode on this later, but there's like an unprecedented surge of women running for office that happened yes. in 2018. Yes. And I think I read an article you wrote about what happens when women Yeah, get so you do
1: – right. So you do see a shift towards more representational politics of, you know, more people making policy on these issues. I think, again, you know, it runs into the issue – I think you were talking about math, that you're talking about especially high-achieving women who have been elected to Congress, you know, making policy for, you know, obviously a group of women in the United States who are much more diverse than that. But you see more of the energy and thought going into that space. And I think sometimes, you know, it's just a little unpredictable, like, what is going to be the event that, you know, is the Catalyst for change like this. Like if you look at um if you look at like the history of gender politics in Iceland, which is very interesting, and you can learn about on the um on our Netflix show Explained, where I was looking at it. Um, you know, the moment there in the 1970s that really seemed to catalyze reform, it was this moment where the women of Iceland just went on strike, that 90% of the women in Iceland, they just didn't go to work. You know, the the phones weren't working because phone operation is like a predominantly female um, occupation. The newspapers didn't come out. Like, it really ground the Icelandic economy, like, granted, it's a tiny island, but it ground the Icelandic economy to a halt for a day. And that was kind of the beginning of this push towards more gender equity, this push towards better childcare, um, better childcare policy. But, yeah, I think like you're saying, Ezra, like so much is caught up in just like pushing back on what is happening. It's really hard for me to see like that being the catalyzing thing that, you know, is going to get women to leave their jobs for a day to, you know, demand better paid leave, to demand better childcare. care. It would almost feel like out of place where we are right now because there's feels like there's so many other urgent things happening around us.
2: And with that, take a break. Talk about Subway's.
1: Okay, white
2: paper we got for you this week is called Subways and Urban Air Pollution. It is by Nicholas Gendron Carrier, Marco Gonzalez Navarro, Stefano Poloni, and Matthew Turner. Um, the, The conclusion here is not like super counterintuitive, but it is interesting that it has not really been measured before. People often say that one good thing about building mass transit is it will improve a city's air, but we haven't really known if that's true. Uh, they're able to use uh, satellite data that exists and look at at least recent new built subways and show that there is a about a four percent drop in particulates in the air within a ten kilometer radius of city centers.
3: Genuinely cool methodology. Yeah, um, measuring air particulates from satellites after you build a subway.
2: Yeah, I mean it's cool. It's 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 interesting. I mean this like this is what space. <laughs> What, <laughs> Future. What, what people say, right, is like this will be good. Like people will ride the subway and there won't be all these emissions. And there's like a lot of complicated theoretical objections you could raise, like why that might not really happen. Uh, but what they're showing is like you can actually look. It, it does happen. Um, the mortality benefit of this is about $595 million per year. Um, they note that subway construction costs are all over the map, so it's not – obvious whether that meets cost-benefit test. Um, I think it does for most of the cities that actually did build subways and it's a pretty cool result. Um, This seems fairly obvious but it appears to be that the reason the pollution goes down is that a lot of people ride the subway and subways don't (laughs) cause a lot of pollution Uh, but they have like statistical tests to, to show that. I mean, I guess it's inter- – I mostly think about the United States. Uh, the policy implications of this for the United States don't seem super-duper obvious to me. But it really shows that well, – isn't, the- it, isn't it, isn't it build more, more, subways? more subways? Well, so here, here's the thing. This is good because clearly it, whatever you're seeing is not obvious to <laughs> us. <laughs> okay. So the biggest American cities already have subway systems, right? And the paper shows that there are diminishing marginal – Returns mm-hmm. from this pretty strictly, right? And that the the pollution benefits of expansions are not as good, right? So you know, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, San Francisco, D.C., Boston, uh, uh, even Atlanta, Miami—all these cities have heavy rail systems. Then I was trying to think, well, okay, what are the biggest cities that don't have any subway at all? And there's a bunch like Dallas, Seattle um, that have opted to build. Light rail systems, which I think is probably in retrospect not a great idea. Um, But with this paper, looks at cities that didn't have stuff like that. So I'm not sure if the inference follows that, right? Like Dallas already has, I think, a four or five line light rail system. So if they built a brand new subway line, I assume they already built their light rail on the most promising transit corridors. So, I mean, the effect might carry over, right? So San Antonio, uh, which has no rail transit at all, should probably build a single line subway along its most promising corridor. But... There are tons of – really big at times like Lagos in, in Nigeria, I think Manila in the Philippines, like huge third world cities that have no transit at all. And they're showing that even some relatively small Chinese cities uh, like Wuhan and stuff had a really positive pollution effect from this. So
3: I think there are a couple things here. So one of the things that is true in this study and I think true in a bunch of the studies we've talked about on, on this podcast is just – The cost in health of pollution is just bigger than really we tend to talk about in politics. It's bigger than I think at this point when a lot of people feel pollution is a more or less solved problem then people give it credit for. Like I grew up in Southern California in, in the era when LA was really polluted when you would be driving through and you would just see this like cloud of smog and people were really worried about pollution. But now people don't see it. It, it seems like we figured it out. People are worried about global warming in the future. They're not as worried about breathing in particulates. I don't want to say everybody, right? There are certainly communities in the country that are near giant refineries and other things. But but. In general, it is receded as an issue in our politics, that doesn't mean the particulates are not there <laughs> and it doesn't mean there aren't a lot of health benefits to be found by, by bringing them down. So to me, the implication of a paper like this is that um, you really do want to try to do what you can to take emissions-creating vehicles off the road. And there are a lot of approaches to that. One is subways, right? You know, we these little bird scooters are all around or lime scooters or whatever. Yes. I don't know if they – I don't know what they – are they – they're electric, right? Yes. Yeah. So – they're it is. A, it is a zero emissions It's a zero emissions option. transportation option. Um, you know, there's a fight about how many of them to have, but they really are. If you have enough of them, they are a useful replacement for cars in small point-to-point transportation needs right like they're, they're good for going around dc from like one meeting to another and so like maybe you'd want more of those right they, they really are like a nuisance on the sidewalk but we've given so much space to cars i mean matt you like to make the joke about dockless cars being yes. all around and who's going to regulate them <laughs> and they really do create a problem on the other end you know california still has this massive subsidy for buying an electric vehicle like if you go buy an electric car in California versus a, a gas car, and I think even most hybrids there, you're still getting a really, really big tax credit on top of there's still a federal tax credit.
2: Yeah. I mean, the tax credit is much larger than the cost of just like buying an electric scooter Right. for every single person. <laughs> um, it doesn't cover an electric scooter, does it? No. I mean, but that's- <laughs> Oh, that's, I, didn't that's, th- th- I didn't even think <laughs> about that. that you can sort of, just make electric scooters that, free. That, that's what I'm saying. It's like if you pay $85,000 for a Tesla- California will give you, like, $8,000 to, like, kick in, right? But if you're like, I'd like a $200 electric scooter, it's like, no way, man. Like, that's crazy. But but whatever
3: it is, just, like, you can imagine a lot of different policies. It is isn't all-subway creation that would – Take emissions down, and if that were something people were more worried about, you know, y- you don't need just one answer here. You can have a lot of different answers.
1: Right. And I think this is like an interesting space where, it's, it's like, to be fully honest, I do not fully understand their space-based methodology, but it sounds really cool and very advanced. Where like that we're able to get at these questions that we might not, you know, 15, 20 years have been able to get at about how many particulates are in the sky. I mean, I would be very interested as we've had like the explosion of not even like just dockless scooters, but bike share programs becoming, you know, I think in the past decade have gone from like, I would not expect to see those. And now in like every major city seems to have a bike share program as if you could see I'd be curious to know if you could see like a noticeable effect of, you know, of those type of programs in, you know, the same methodology that you're seeing from subways. My hunch is way fewer people are riding these, but they're also like a lot cheaper to throw some bikes on the street and create some docks versus, you know, dig up an entire subway system. So, you know, if there are diminishing returns on expanding your subway system, it'd be interesting to know kind of like how these bike scooters, you know, various forms of emission-free transportation if they are also leading to similar kind of environmental outcomes. Yeah, and
2: I also did just want to note that, you know, for the purposes of cost-benefit, they are looking at the, like, health implications of particulates, right? So this is, like, non-climate considerations, pollution-wise, and in terms of, like, economic benefits to the city. They're looking like just – because it's a paper about pollution. uh, Like conventionally, right, cities make transportation investments because they're hoping to spur development and growth and and so on and so forth. And actually one reason you might have been skeptical about the pollution is there was another NBR paper I think two weeks ago and it showed that – Subway construction leads to sprawl in effect, right? A, a little bit contrary to sort of stereotype, but like basically anything you do to improve transportation in a city makes the city bigger. Um, it is less sprawl-inducing to build a subway than a highway, but like the only way to truly constrain sprawl is to like do nothing so you can't get around town. Uh, but, but you know, pollution declines even though the city grows faster, right? So, like, that's pretty good because there's a monetary cost to creating the subway. But oftentimes when you're thinking about pollution control, you know, you're imagining basically like constrained economic activity and the air will be cleaner. But this is like you you grow your city by building better transportation. It's just that it's just it's a lot cleaner to ride a subway.
3: You know what else is pretty clean? Listening to the weed? <laughs> yeah. You just download it through the air.
2: Checking out. Our, Facebook group. Actually, I should mention: if you live in Austin, Texas, yes. one of the largest municipalities in America that has no rail transit after San Antonio and Jacksonville, you should come on Thursday to hear me, Jane, and Dara doing a, a live performance. 1 p.m. Uh, it is at the Voltron Space, which sounds really cool. That does sound cool. It's part, part of, of the Tribune Texas Festival, Texas Tribune right? Festival. Um, it's free. You know, if you're, it, it is heard. if you're if you're in Austin, please check us out. Maybe listen to the Ezra Klein Show.
3: Maybe. Yeah.
2: If you're not, we actually Austin. went
3: to, I should say, the Ezra Clan show is now twice a week, which is exciting. Um, the episode we just brought out was with Carol Anderson on the myth of American democracy and the
2: reality of constant voter suppression. So I think it will be of interest to weeds folks. And people are always saying to me, when is there going to be another season of The Impact? Yeah, when is well, that?
1: Now we know. November 2nd, we are launching the second season of The Impact, and it is all about the seven. Most interesting, most exciting policy experiments all across America. That is
3: interesting and exciting.
1: It is. So if you go subscribe to the feed, you will start getting episodes November 2nd. You can check out um, a trailer. If you look at my Twitter page, you can see a link to that. I am super, super excited for this.
2: Awesome. That is a lot to listen to. Uh, So we will cut this off now. Um, But uh, thanks to our producer and engineer, Griffin Tanner. Thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, The Weeds will return on Friday.